Reading from Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12. War was declared in heaven. Michael and his angels were to wage war with the dragon, so the dragon and his angels made war. But he was not strong enough, neither was there found any place for him in heaven anymore. So the great dragon was expelled, that ancient serpent who was called Slenderer, and Satan who deceives the whole inhabited world. He was thrown into the earth, and his angels were expelled with him. And I heard a loud voice in the heavens saying, Now the salvation and the power have come, even the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accused them before our God day and night. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not cherish their lives even up to death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, yes, you who are dwelling in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has little time. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that uh, as I seek to give an exposition of it, that you would keep me from error and enable me to uh, draw out truths that you would have these, your people, to understand and to worship you and serve you with the better. We uh, commit this continued time of worship to you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the passage that I just read has heaven declaring war against Satan, and it's got all of the saints joining in on that war and the phrase make war or declare war occurs over and over again in uh, this book there is not a single man woman or child that is exempted from this call to war against the world the flesh and the devil we're either involved or we are AWOL we are absent without leave and what we're going to see this week and next week is that God's great war was not declared without detailed plans and purposes and tactics and strategies and character issues we need to put on and empowerment from on high. Uh, can you imagine the Lightning football team going into battle without any practice, without any plans, without a coach? Uh, Trevor, as you know, on the sidelines carrying his battle plans back and forth. Can you imagine the army or any other uh, branch of the military in the United States going into battle without having at least the knowledge of what part of the plans they're going to be doing. It would be ridiculous. Nobody would think of that. And yet how many Christians go into battle without having any intelligence whatsoever on who the adversary is? They know next to nothing about Satan and his demons, and they wonder, why do I keep falling over and over and over again? They don't learn from their mistakes. Uh, how many Christians go into battle without guidance, training, or backup? Uh, how many go into battle without understanding uh, what are the specific strategies for conquering our flesh, conquering the world and the devil? Uh, they have not mastered the book of Revelation, which was designed by God, at least in part, it was designed to be the church's war manual. Now, in our series, we have covered every single verse and phrase of this amazing book, and we have looked at a lot of the detailed aspects of spiritual warfare. I'm not going to recover 
those uh, detailed things. Instead, what I want to do in these last three sermons is get above the leaves of the trees and fly high enough so that we can see the general contours of the land, the general contours of this book as a whole. So last week we started looking from this bird's eye view through the lens of the songs of Revelation and through the prayers of Revelation and uh, uh, saw how they related to this great war. And because I dealt with those adequately, I felt uh, justified and skipping over at least uh, the priestly and the prophetic aspects uh, uh, of the outline. I'm going to be putting all of that stuff up on the web, and I may just give you some ideas of where that goes, but I won't be covering that today. Next week, we will look at how the Father and the Spirit relate to us in this war and how we relate to them as foot soldiers uh, of the cross and really that is so important next week's message is very important if even the angels of heaven could not succeed in their war against Satan without the help of the triune God how on earth would we be able to succeed without the help of Father Son and Holy Spirit equipping us leading us empowering us now today's focus is going to be on our relationship to the Son we saw last week that the church of Laodicea is just one example of what happens to a church in which Jesus is absent. Remember that Jesus was upset enough with the church, he was ready to vomit them out. He wasn't even in the church. He was outside knocking on the door of the church, and it indicates that when Jesus is not present, our prayers, our worship, our songs do not get past the ceiling. Well, the same is true of our spiritual battles as, as a whole. If, if we do not have the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, in front of us leading the way, we will not succeed. If we are not clothed daily in the armor of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to appear naked just as the uh, church of Laodicea did. Now, the work of Jesus in this book can be summed up in the words prophet, priest, and king that you see at the top of your outline. There is not a single page in Revelation where Jesus is not either actively advancing this warfare, this advance of his kingdom, or at least celebrating the victory in the last chapters of Revelation. And I struggled with knowing how to best present this information and uh, I ended up deciding that what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give some samples of what it means for Christ to be living his kingship through us today. This is not going to be uh, a complete survey. It's not even going to be a complete look at Jesus' kingship. That would take a sermon uh, all of its own. But because of our union with Jesus, this book declares that every believer has been made a king who is already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's the only way we can be king, is by being seated uh, with Christ in the heavenly. Secondly, every believer is called a priest who is reconciling man to God. Again, because of our union with Jesus. Now, we don't make any sacrifices. Um, Jesus has finished the priestly work of sacrifice. All we are doing is we are applying the already finished work of Christ uh, to various facets of life. Interestingly, there's not a single reference to every believer being a prophet. And some commentators have puzzled over that. Uh, if you listen to the sermon from two weeks ago, 
um, it won't be a puzzle to you because we saw that all true prophecy in the technical sense of that word has ceased in AD 70 and what sometimes goes for prophecy today uh, is not really prophecy it's the Lord's uh, guidance I know there's debate on that uh, but the New Testament I believe uses the term prophecy to always refer to inspired inerrant infallible authoritative revelation from God to his people so our strategy we do have a prophetic strategy uh, but our strategy is not to get new inspired revelation our strategy prophetically is by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to have the wisdom to apply these scriptures these prophetic scriptures uh, or as Re revelation calls it the book of this prophecy uh, to the situations that we face now today we're going to focus on the kingly activities. They flow from Christ. Revelation 1 verse 5 says that Jesus Christ is right now the ruler of the kings of the earth. We're not waiting for him to become king. And that passage indicates that this immediately sets up warfare, not just between the kings of this earth and Christ, it sets up warfare, because he's king, between the kings of this earth and the saints. Now a lot of Christians don't think of themselves as being at war with the kings of this earth, but they do need to think that way. And we'll see why in a bit. Revelation 11 verse 7 says that the demonic beast who comes up out of the abyss, uh, this is the one that possessed Nero and later Titus, declares war, not just on Jesus, declares war on the saints. Chapter 17, verse 14 says the ten kings make war with the Lamb. So it involves humans, but it also involves the demons that are behind those humans. But chapter 17 says of those first century humanistic kings, they will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them because, now he gives two reasons, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So the two reasons that Jesus conquers those kings, he's Lord of lords, King of kings, that's just a facet of his kingship. And then it goes on to say, because his saints are faithful in advancing his cause. But this and many other verses show that kingship necessitates war. And our union with him necessitates us joining in that war as representative kings. Now, I think it will be helpful if I show what is involved in Christ's kingship first so that we can get a, a little bit of a handle on what's involved in kingship as a whole. I recently we recited the shorter catechism question that asks, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? The answer is, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now the larger catechism, number 45, gives a much fuller and more detailed answer to this question. It says, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. And so there is a people, an army that's going to be advancing his cause, giving them officers. So there's a hierarchy of representatives under Jesus. He goes on laws, gives them laws. A kingdom without laws is really no kingdom. And every nation that casts off his law has declared treason, basically, against the Almighty. Giving them censures. This would be involved with church discipline, state penalties. Uh, it goes on. By which he visibly governs them. 
in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. And each one of those phrases uh, has a bunch of scriptures that the Westminster authors use to try to show every one of those things, according to the scripture, flows from his office as being king. And um, the church is his army by which he advances that. Now, Revelation goes beyond this, and I'm not going to go over all of the scriptures in your outline, but because Christ rules as king, those who are united to him are also called kings. You are a king, whether you're a male or a female, an adult or a child, you are a king. After Christ's ascension to heaven, chapter 5, praises God, saying about all believers, you have made them kings and priests to our God, and they will reign. And as we have seen repeatedly in this book, this book treats believers, at least overcomers, as being those who are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Even while we're living on earth, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Though most uh, Christians in the church of Thyatira had gone AWOL, uh, absent without leave, Christ said that every overcomer in that church who remained faithful to him, quote, he said this about them, I will give him power over the nations. That is an astounding promise when you think about it. Because of our union with Jesus, being seated with him in the, in the heavenlies, we have power over the nations. A lot of people do not even consider this but it is something that should be part and parcel of our Christianity. Why would we have power over the nations? Well, because we share in his kingship. We are exercising his authority. We are serving his interests. We are advancing his cause. And I think it's a shame that the church of Jesus Christ does not ask God for more judgments against the persecutors of the church. He's even given us words on how to do it. You know, the songs of Moses and of the Lamb is what uh, Revelation refers to them. So those would be the Psalms and the New Covenant songs give us specific words. Now I'm just going to read the rest of your first subpoint. It says that Christians reign with him and wear crowns. Throughout the book, there are many characteristics of God's people, such as self-control, perseverance, boldness, patience, overcoming, etc., that are associated with their kingship. And those latter characteristics we've got to put on if we're going to operate in the authority that Christ has given to us uh, as kings. Now what I want to do the remainder of this sermon is I want to give you a whirlwind overview of some of the concrete practical ways in which this kingship should manifest itself in the things that we interact with. And we'll start with that first point, the 144,000. That's one of the kingly groups. Uh, the 144,000 we saw were the Jewish believers who had survived the Great Tribulation. And you may question my interpretation of their fleeing from Jerusalem being a kingly aspect. It really is. Anybody who has studied these 144,000 will affirm with no ambiguity that these were not cowardly people incredibly bold people. This was a tactical retreat. It was not a fleeing from their duty. In fact, they were specifically commanded by their commander, Jesus Christ, to flee the moment they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Let me read that for you. Luke 21, 
20 through 21. Jesus said, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. So to disobey Christ's command uh, on this would have been suicidal and foolhardy. You can resist the state in many different ways. You can resist by bringing rebuke, like John the Baptist did, or by serving in office, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Or uh, you can resist them like Rahab resisted the state by hiding citizens, protecting those citizens. We call that a form of, yeah, what do we call it? Uh, interposition, we call it. Um, but resistance has many different uh, features in the Scripture, and one of the ways is by fleeing, by fleeing. Why do I call that resistance? It's because neither Rome nor Israel wanted them to flee. If they were going to have blind submission to the government, they would have said, okay, the government wants us to turn ourselves in, let's turn ourselves in to be tortured and killed. That's not the greatest way of building a church. Um, getting massacred by the enemy. Now, there are times where God does call us to lay down our lives for Christ. And the, in those situations, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But there are times where God himself wants his people to flee. Let me give you a, another example of a command that was given by Christ. This is from Matthew 10, verse 23. He told his disciples, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another, for assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so fleeing is not inconsistent with their union with Christ, with their kingly office. So fleeing for three and a half years was part of the overall strategy that he had, and we saw the incredibly beautiful outcome of that tactical retreat. We saw that the very day that the 144,000 Jews fled from Jerusalem, God had an earthquake happened that split the Mount of Olives, made a pass that they could go through. You can still see that pass uh, to this day. And uh, he had them flee to Pella, where they lived for the next three and a half years. Good angels surrounded them so that the demons could not find them and harass them. And interestingly, history tells us that King Herod Agrippa II protected them for the next three and a half years, which ought to appear very weird because King Agrippa was not particularly fond of Christians. In fact, during the next three and a half years, he became Titus's enforcer who tortured and killed many Christians. So why in the world would he uh, protect them during those three and a half years? And that's what history tells us he did. Well, there were only two reasons he did that. Um, the uh, first reason is that just weeks before they fled from Jerusalem, there had been uh, Jewish-Gentile riots and slaughterings of each other, and all of the cities of the Pella region had completely been emptied. Everybody killed in those regions, and King Herod wanted them repopulated. Secondly, he had been so humiliated, so embarrassed, uh, so outraged with the behavior of the, the, the zealots, the three groups that had taken over Jerusalem, that he hated those zealots, and anybody who was their enemy was at least temporarily uh, his uh, friend. So... 
they were 144,000 marched into the Pella area uh, with cities full of food and clothing and other provisions that sustained them for the next three and a half years. And they emerged from that hiding place as the greatest missionary movement that we have had in the last 2,000 years. 144,000 people who didn't get married, did not get involved in any area of life. They just solely devoted themselves to extending the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. And some stayed in, in Israel. Uh, were martyred but were preaching the gospel there and they did indeed succeed in turning the nations upside down but at every point that they were preaching it was in direct disobedience to civil law this is so important to understand because blind obedience blind submission to God-hating states is not Christian let me give you an example. I've had some Christians tell me it is a sin to smuggle Bibles into countries that say you can't smuggle Bibles in here. They say it's a sin because it's illegal. And I think, well, now wait a minute. Every Muslim country just about that you are going to evangelize in says, Sharia law says, you cannot convert a Muslim. So are you going to do away with the Great Commission just because their laws say you, it's illegal, you cannot do that? That's ridiculous. In fact, it is blasphemy because to say that is to say that the state determines right and wrong and what is lawful rather than Jesus Christ, which is a complete overthrowing of Christ's kingship. If Jesus cannot make his own laws, then he is not king in reality. And so when man's statutes compete with Christ's laws, Christ's laws always trump man's laws. So, for example, when Herod Antipas, this is an earlier Herod, commanded Jesus, uh, well, he did it through the Herodians. The Herodians said, Herod said, get out of this province right now. Uh, Jesus refused. Not only did he insult Herod by saying, tell that fox, actually it's literally effeminate, tell that vixen, because he knew it was his wife, it wasn't Herod himself that said it, which everybody would have gotten a chuckle about, but he not only insulted him with calling him a fox, or his wife, uh, the, the, the ruler of the, the home, but he refused to obey. He said, no, I'm going to stay here for three more days. That was a direct violation of a king's mandate. Okay, Every time you evangelize in many Muslim countries, you are disobeying their Sharia law. But those statutes are not lawful because they are in rebellion to the king of kings. And if we do not submit to the king of kings, then our submission to other kings is hollow. Now, of course, the early Christians repeatedly told their persecutors, look, we are loyal citizens. We want to be in submission to the king. But they understood that Romans 13 uh, says that there is no authority if not from God. If God does not authorize the state to command them to stay, to surrender, to stop preaching, to close the doors to their church, stop fleeing, stop influencing, whatever commands that they might give, all they have to do is look upwards in the chain of command, just like in a military, right? And to see if these kings have stepped out of the line of authority. Because we don't want to step out of the line of authority from Christ. We are kings as well. So they're looking up there, realizing, oh, he has no authority to make that command because he is now countermanding Christ's command to me. That's all that needs to be done. You, you, you who vote, you need to vote as kings who are representatives of Christ's kingship. You need to be representing this line of authority. Now, chapter 13 
shows that in the next three and a half years, from AD 70 through 73, there were challenges as well, because once the rebels were crushed and Herod had taken over, along with Titus, had taken over Jerusalem, he no longer was interested in protecting these Christians, and he actually became the enforcer of Titus's harsh martial law during the time that Israel was occupied. This was the time that Titus enforced everyone had to wear the mark of the beast on the forehead or on the hand. Uh, some of the nobility were able to just wear a coin uh, when they needed to. Others had to be tattooed or, um, uh, or branded. But people were afraid to buy or sell without government permission. So even on economic transactions, God's people were violating statutes because the king that they were representing, King Jesus, told them, no, you cannot compromise your faith by offering a pinch of incense to Caesar. That's what they were supposed to do. You cannot buy or sell without offering a pinch of incense to Caesar uh, and wearing uh, this mark of the beast on uh, your head or on, uh, on, on your hand. And so what's going on in Revelation 13 is they were setting up a black market. They didn't just say, oh, okay, I guess we have to starve to death. No, they continued to buy and sell and trade with each other. And so Romans 13 authorizes a black market in certain circumstances, a necessary implication of the fact we are kings under Jesus. In some Muslim countries, you would not be able to survive if you did not engage in a black market economy. So I'm just giving you some samplings of how our kingship is lived out in real life. We saw first century documentation of how the two false Jewish prophets performed absolutely astounding miracles, including literally calling down fire from heaven and uh, uh, making a statue to speak and to move. And they used these and other miracles to convince the Jews, hey, we're leaders here, it's okay, God himself has authorized us to offer a pinch to Caesar of, of incense. He's authorized us to wear the mark of the beast. They didn't call him the beast, but the mark of Titus. Um, and the, that um, uh, they said, it, so long as you mean it to be to God, it doesn't matter. And so they had their writings that they, they worked through that. Now, most Jews went along with that uh, idea, and those who did not were killed, and that includes some of the 144,000 who stayed behind to evangelize in Israel. Chapter 13, 15 through 17 says, And it was granted to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast should actually speak, and should cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes everyone, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to receive marks on their right hand or on their forehead, so that no one would be able to buy or sell who does not have the mark, the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So how does a kingly representative of Jesus respond to such blasphemous laws. He disregards them because he recognizes they are not lawful, and Romans 13 says he has no authority to make such commandments. People need to realize that Romans 13 describes the ideal government as a minister of God, and Revelation 13, so there's two 13s, Revelation 13 describes the de facto government of both Nero and of Titus as what? A servant, not of God, a servant of demons, of the beast. Uh, the way some people interpret Romans 13 as describing 
submission to Nero is absolutely ridiculous because it not only contradicts Revelation 13, it contradicts the whole substance of Romans 13. Nero's government did the exact opposite of Romans 13 by being a minister of the demonic beast from the abyss, by being a terror to good works, he definitely was that, supporting immoral works, and executing wrath upon Christians rather than upon evil men. So the, the government in Romans 13 never does that. It cannot be a description of Nero. So Romans 13 describes the ideal government as a minister to God taking its orders from Scripture. Revelation 13 describes the de facto government of humanistic uh, entities like Nero and like, um, like uh, Titus. So that's just one of the practical outworkings of, um, uh, 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 of this, um, this issue of kingship. Now, if this is true, if what I've just described between the Re Romans 13 and Revelation 13 is true, which it is, <laughs> but if this is true, this means that governments need to be conquered with the gospel. That would be our priestly function. Governments need to be addressed by the scriptures being applied. That would be the prophetic uh, function. And they also need to live out Christ's kingship and civics. That would be the kingly function. Our allegiance is not to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or any other party. Now, we can play roles in those parties. I mean, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, they were in humanistic governments, right? We can pray roles in there, but our allegiance is not to the party. Our allegiance is to King uh, Jesus. And as kings, we must, as Romans 13 words it, be God's minister in every area of life. Now, obviously, Romans 13 is dealing with a literal ideal king. But if we're called kings, there's at least some application that we can make. It's calling us to look through the chain of authority and say, okay, I need to represent Christ's kingship. What does his word say I should do in this particular situation? <clears throat> and when humanistic kings war against our kingship, we need to uh, look at that chain of command and sometimes disobey. Now, we can't go through every principle of kingship that Revelation teaches, but if the modern church would take seriously this war manual for the advancement of Christ's kingdom, I think our politics would be different, our culture would be different. Only Jesus, the great king, can make our efforts succeed. But he's given us a war manual that governs not only our behavior, should govern our plans, and if we ignore this war manual, why in the world would he uh, bless us with success? We're not doing it his way. Now the next point re really reiterates what I've already said, that when the ungodly state alliances make a direct war upon Jesus, uh, Christians may not submit. Really to submit is to lose our authority under Jesus. It's to lose our kingship under Jesus. There are too many compromised Christian politicians who lose all credibility and all authority. They simply do not have the authority of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they don't have the faith to see themselves in their politics as being seated with Christ in the heavenlies. They fail to recognize that their warfare is not just a political maneuvering. No, they're dealing with spiritual principalities and powers that stand behind these people that are getting in the way. Revelation 17, 14 says of the ten kings who clearly had demon kings behind them 
that uh, supported uh, the beast who was behind Titus says they will make war with the lamb and the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So this passage indicates that Jesus was going to conquer the 10 provinces that had made this pact with the beast. He will conquer them. Did he do it? And we saw it, yes. He definitely did. The Roman Empire sustained disaster after disaster that came directly from Christ's hand. And church history tells us Christians were there to pick up the pieces. They were there to share the gospel, to point people uh, to the Lord. And they began to become Christians. Chadwick's book says that probably the single greatest reason for the first three centuries of growth was that Christians were constantly there during earthquakes and famines and plagues, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ as well as charity. And the church grew like crazy so that city after city began to become Christian. Province after province became Christian until finally the Roman Empire itself declared itself to be Christian. But the reason that happened is because the early church fathers went way beyond what we tend to do in our politics, uh, which is looking at the lesser of two evils. They sought to be salt and light, and it affected their evangelism, their comprehensive discipleship. They did not compromise the scriptures. Incremental compromise with paganism just leaves us with a slightly nicer form of paganism, but it still does not glorify God. Uh, these early church fathers like Athanasius, uh, wow, you read his writings, they, they wanted everything transformed, and they were penetrating every area of life. So God calls us to influence politics as kings who represent Jesus and how we vote, how we govern, as priests who apply the gospel to everything we do, and as prophets who are governed by the word of God. Now I'm going to skip over the next point, already dealt with that. Uh, point after that. One of the things that people have written about is the way that Revelation defines humanistic uh, politics as a lair of demons who manipulate and control behind the scenes and eventually even move politicians to persecute, uh, politicians to persecute Christians. It becomes a beast. And it's fascinating. When you look at Daniel, which stands behind the imagery of the beast here, you look at Daniel, and the four world empires were described as beasts. When Nebuchadnezzar became converted, he was given the heart of a man and made to stand on his feet. Still had some bestial characteristics, but became a man, right? But humanistic governments were described as beasts. And each of those bestial kingdoms were called beasts. Why? Because there was an angelic beast that stood behind them. Remember we saw there were three orders of angel. There were those, what the New King James calls, living creatures, weird faces looking every which way, incredibly powerful beings. Then there's the cherubim, who are the warrior angels, and the seraphim, who are the messenger angels. But countries have a beast-like angel that rules over them, and that's what's going on in Daniel. Well, Revelation says the beast from the, uh, came up from the abyss, controlled the emperor. Initially it was Nero, then it became Titus. And um, uh, the, the point is, politics is not neutral. You're either for Christ or you're against him. And in this book, because the saints based all of their decision-making upon the word of God, they had the courage and the wisdom to be able to distinguish between a state that was acting as a true minister of God and a state that was acting like a beast. 
And I've given a number of scriptures uh, showing, well, chapter 13. Um, you know, Rome is called a beast. The, the, uh, the prophet from the land is also called a beast from the land. Uh, that was Israel. So to live as citizens in two kingdoms, it really requires discernment. It may also result in martyrdom. But these saints trusted. They were secure in Christ's kingdom. Whether they got captured or whether they got martyred, it really didn't matter. If they got captured, they were, as Paul words it, prisoners of Christ. Christ wants them in, their, in that prison because he needs to advance his kingdom within that prison network, right? Or if they get killed, they get martyred, they're just transitioning from the church on earth to the church in heaven, which is warring. It is warring through its prayers. You cannot extinguish this great battle. Demons certainly are not going to quit. They are in this for the long haul, and Christians must be in this even unto death. In any case, if you investigate these and many other verses in Revelation, you'll discover many of the saints in the book of Revelation had all the marks of a king, a true king in the social arena. A true king is first and foremost a representative of Jesus, not a representative of the political machine. A true king advances Christ's kingdom not his own. A true king operates in terms of Christ's laws, not his own. A true king wants people to submit to Christ, not submit to him, right? A, a, a true king has conquered his own fleshly desires, and therefore he has the purity of the 144,000. A true king organizes, governs his family affairs, his church affairs, his civic affairs, according to the Word of God. So the point is, if, as the Catechism says, Christ has made war against all his and our enemies through the gospel, then we need to be applying the gospel to everything that is at enmity with Jesus. Not one square inch of planet Earth is exempted from the plans of this war manual. All must bow before King Jesus. Now I'll skip over the next point as I dealt with it, I think, very, very adequately in my verse-by-verse -verse exposition. It simply states that uh, it isn't simply bestial governments that this book opposes. It opposes the revolutionary uh, anarchists who wanted to throw off all government in the first century and uh, they ended up being far worse than the tyrannical governments that they opposed. By the way, if you want two fascinating studies on the logical end result of anarchism, read Josephus and his description of the three factions, all of whom were just trying to get rid of Rome, trying to get rid of the, the government, but once they got control, it was horrible. Second that you can study is, um, well, I can't even remember the name of the book of it, um, the it has the name of the radical Anabaptists. Michael might remember the name of it, but uh, Munster describes the radical Anabaptists of Munster. They didn't want believe in any government whatsoever, no family government, no civil government. And uh, once they overthrew the government that they hated so much, then they began controlling things and all hell broke loose. It was far, far worse than the tyrannical governments that they were opposing. Now let's move on to the kingly actions within the church. It's not just the political realm and the cultural realm that is at odds with King Jesus. If we as kings are burning with a holy jealousy for Christ's name, then we must oppose rebellion to Christ wherever it may be found. And church discipline is one aspect 
of representing Christ's kingship. Now, of course, church discipline can be abused just like civics can be abused, right? So if a pastor is using church discipline in order to protect his own uh, turf instead of protecting Christ's glory, he's not representing Christ anymore and he should step down from office. But on the other hand, if pastors are refusing to exercise discipline against uh, those who are rebels of Christ, then again, they're not representing Christ and should either repent or step down from office. By the way, even you members, you're kings, right? You're kings. And so members who coddle rebels against Christ are not exercising their function as kings under Jesus. Even members have the kingly authority to at least rebuke rebellion that they witness within the church. Leviticus 19.17 says that failure to rebuke a brother in sin is to actually hate him. It makes sense in a sense when you realize sin is like a person who's running over a cliff and taking a bunch of other people over the cliff, like lemmings with him, and you're saying, stop, don't do that. That's the rebuke. If you say, oh, that's not loving to rebuke a person, you're saying it's okay for them to run over their cliff, right, to their death. Whatever people want to do, that's okay to do. No, that is not loving. He says that's actually hating a person when you fail to rebuke them. Luke 17, 3 says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So rebuke is one of many kingly functions that every man, woman, and child is called to in Scripture. Whole church of Ephesus was praised in chapter 2, verse 2 in these words, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and found them to be liars. So here was a church that was properly representing Jesus Christ even though it was uncomfortable to do so. Church discipline, it's never comfortable. I never enjoy church discipline. It's always uncomfortable, but it is essential for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. He praises them in the same verse for not putting up with evil in the church, saying, you cannot stand those who are evil. I talked with a pastor here in town who was an evangelical. I took him out to lunch and uh, was just trying to get to know his ministry, pray for him and encourage him. And I discovered this guy does not have any fencing of communion. He admitted that he admits practicing homosexuals to the Lord's table. And I asked him, how on earth can you do this? And he said, oh, it's easy. Lord's Supper is a symbol of the gospel, and the gospel is to whosoever will. Well, you can imagine the, the argument that ensued uh, after that, because obviously I believe the gospel is to whosoever will. We invite people to come and to believe, but what happens when they repent of their sins and they believe in the gospel? They are abandoning one army. They are pledging unconditional surrender to Jesus. They're joining another army, which is under different laws. What these elders, what these pastors were doing by allowing practicing homosexuals to partake, as well as adulterers and other people like that, is instead of ruling under Jesus, they were ruling under another God known as political correctness. In contrast, Christ praised Ephesus saying, you cannot stand those who are evil. Jesus liked that about the church cannot stand. He praises them for hating the immoral deeds of the Nicolaitans in chapter 2, verse 6. So there are, are certain kinds of hate that are church virtues. God calls us to hate Satan. It's not a very good thing to love Satan, right? He calls us to hate abortion. 
calls us to hate incest. In chapter 2, verse 6, he praises the church of Ephesus, saying, but you do have this, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. On the other hand, he rips into Pergamos and Thyatira for being too kind and gentle with the same heretics and the same immoralities. This issue of church discipline is in part a kingly function that judges it is a priestly function that wants to reconcile. Our, our purpose in discipline is not to get rid of people. Our purpose in discipline is to say, we love you. We want you to be reconciled to Christ. That's a priestly function, and it is in part a prophetic function that's applying the Scripture, not our opinions. We can never discipline based on our opinions. We are saying this is what King Jesus says needs to happen into your life. And, you know, there's a sense in which I have done a terrible disservice by dividing up prophet, priest, and king, because they all belong together. You cannot separate them. You can distinguish between them, but you cannot separate them. Kings do, though, have to make tough decisions. They have to go to war. They have to make uncomfortable decisions before the whole church thinks those decisions need to be made. Um, if we are kings, we must war against our own flesh, our own cowardice, as well as of the evil that comes within our jurisdictions. And I didn't even mention jurisdictions in the outline. I should have. Um, you know, you got mom's jurisdictions. You know, you got a mom hat, and you've got a, a wife hat, and you've got dads with their hats, and siblings, and children, and deacons and elders. They're putting on other jurisdictional hats. So you do even need to take that into consideration. Now, some of the courageous kingly actions that John was taking was to name apostate churches and to oppose them. Now, that's not nice, is it? It's not politically correct. You get a lot of criticism when you do that. But John realized that when a church no longer has Jesus in it, there's always demons who will fill the void. And so he called the apostate church a synagogue, which means a gathering of Satan. And he admitted there are true believers in there. He tells them to come out. But he said, it's a synagogue of Satan, which means there's probably more demons in that church than there are true believers. Now, wouldn't that be freaky to go into churches that you realize it's mainly a gathering of demons, not of the saints to worship God, a gathering of demons. And yet I, I would warrant to say, because many of these churches, like Laodicea, Christ was absent. There is a void that's coming in. You look at some of the other ones that had Jezebel, had other heretics. Demons in those churches, rather than Christ uh, uh, being in, in their midst. That's the sad state of many churches today. Now, even making that statement is standing in opposition to Christ's enemies and is protecting sheep who might otherwise wander into congregations shepherded by wolves. If pastors are not metaphorically killing wolves, pulling sheep out of cisterns, rescuing them from other forms of danger, they're not acting as they should, as kings, as priests, as prophets. Romans says every one of you has a similar function, by the way. It's not just about elders. He says every one of you needs to be exhorting one another, encouraging one another. In fact, Romans says that the church of Rome had been well enough taught that all of them were competent to counsel one another. 
I think you guys have been taught long enough that you are competent to counsel one another. I love to see some of the counseling that's going on in the churches. That is in part a kingly function that judges truth from error. It's in part a priestly function, the seeking to bring people always before Christ and a prophetic function that handles the word properly. Now in chapter 2, John tells Pergamus and Thyatira that they were AWOL in Christ's army. Why? Because they were refusing to discipline and were allowing false prophets and prophetesses to spread their message. Kings must protect. In chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus ties boldly standing for truth in the face of imprisonment and death with a kingly crown. He says to Smyrna, do not fear any of the things that you are about to suffer. Take note, the devil is really about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested and you will have an affliction of 10 days. Stay faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So a crown of life is consistent with kingly actions. He tells Pergamus, I know your works and where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith during the days in which Antipas was my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. So kings advance the kingdom even into areas where there is enormous danger and possible loss of life. Kings must have that kind of courage. You know, our church actually uh, lost some of its evangelistic zeal somewhere along the uh, line. At some point, at uh, one point, almost everybody in our congregation was in some way or another evangelistically reaching out and sharing testimonies of how that happened. I'd love to see that regained within our church. But evangelism involves kingly courage, priestly compassion and prayer, prophetic handling of the scriptures. Even leaving false churches is a kingly action when those churches have compromised the heart of the faith. So in Revelation 18, 14, he tells true believers that still have not left the apostate church. They are slow. He says, come out of her, my people, so as not to participate in her sins and so as not to receive of her plagues. You know, to leave a church is really hard for people whose ancestors have been going there for over a hundred years. But if you are to live as a king under Christ, you have to ask yourself, is this a church where Christ wants me to be? And you know what happens, according to that verse, is when we stay there hoping to reform it, what ends up happening usually is that those people become corrupted themselves. They compromise little by little. It's the frog in the kettle syndrome. Now, while excommunicating those who truly deserve it is a kingly function, being unmoved by an ungodly excommunication also takes kingly spirit. And the Church of Philadelphia had just that. Church of Philadelphia had been excommunicated by the Jewish church, and Jesus said to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things says the holy, the true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one can shut, except he who opens and no one can open. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut because you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. See, I am determining that some of the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, yes, I will cause them to come, do obeisance at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. So there was conversion of these guys where they realized, oh, I can't believe I was so blind. And they come and they worship with the, the Christians. But John was telling them, don't worry about the fact that the church doors have been slammed in your face. I'm going to open up doors for you that absolutely no one can shut. And down through history, when Bible believers have become a little bit soft on the area of discipline, 
liberals have taken over the church, the denomination. It's happened in denomination after denomination amongst the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, you name it. Uh, the liberals have taken over. Up until the time they took over, those liberals are constantly saying, uh, preaching love and patience and tolerance. And, you know, why can't we just always get along? But as soon as they get into power, they have zero tolerance for people who are utterly uncompromising Christians. This is why J. Gresham Machen got excommunicated by a church that, believe it or not, had not excommunicated any heretic prior to that since the 1800s. Briggs, I think, was the last discipline uh, case that was successful. They were willing to tolerate anything except for people who maintained antithesis and called the liberals compromisers and even some of them non-Christians. Francis Schaeffer says, you have not fully defended the truth if you only state the truth. You know, modern, um, postmodern people they don't care if you want to believe weird stuff. That's great for you. This is great for me. But as soon as you say, I believe this, and King Jesus says what you believe is heresy, it is falsehood, it is blasphemy against Christ, that's when the fur flies, right? Uh, that's when you've truly defended uh, the, the faith. Now, obviously, that involves a prophetic function as well as a kingly one. But the more we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures the more prophetic actions of rebuke, instruction, exhortation, and comfort will take place. The more we immerse ourselves in the gospel, the more our priestly heart will develop, and we're going to want to reconcile people to Christ. And the more that we immerse ourselves in the scriptural calls to justice and holiness, the more we will take our kingly calls seriously. All three must always be in harmony with each other. Now, there's one more subpoint under kingship, and that is resisting Satan and his kingdom. Kingly resistance against Satan and demons was so emphasized by me in our verse-by-verse -verse exposition. I'm not going to get into it very much today, but let me just give you a little bit of direction on this. In chapter 2, verse 13, the church of Pergamos was so bold that they had penetrated into the strongest stronghold, the very throne of Satan himself. It's like going into a lion's lair. When we looked at chapter 9, we saw that the primary issue that was facing the first century church was not the blood and flesh persecutors. Yes, they were a problem, but it was the demons that were moving them, that were behind the scenes. It was the billions of demons that had been unleashed in chapter 9. Chapter 12 shows how the church had joined with the angels of heaven in declaring war upon Satan and his host. So declaring war, that's a kingly function. Ignoring the demonic, like some people want to do, oh, that makes me nervous, I don't want to study about demons, that's going AWOL. You're not on God's battlefield, and he calls you to be. Now, chapter 9, verse 4, shows the confidence that believers can have in the face of enormous demonic hordes. So if you're nervous about the whole subject of demons, this is a verse for you. While those demons were afflicting unbelievers, verse 4 shows that demons could only go as far as God allowed them to go. The demonic hordes were told, do not harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant, nor any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, that's such a cool verse, because just like Ezekiel in the Old Testament saw an angel who put an invisible mark. Well, it's not invisible to angels, but it's invisible to us. Put an invisible mark upon the uh, forehead of believers who grieved and mourned over the evils that were in the land, and God protected them. 
and uh, the, the demons could not touch them. In this book, Revelation says God has put a mark upon their foreheads so that demonic hosts cannot touch them, that is, if they're operating in terms of their authority in Jesus. Let me read you a verse. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that whoever is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is, has been born of God, while guarding himself, the wicked one does not touch him. It's not automatic, but while guarding himself. It is this protection we have when we walk in the light as he is in the light that enables us to cast out demons and to oppose all of their works without any uh, of them being able to touch us. But you cannot do that work of casting out demons if you do not have the faith to see yourself as seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We have true kingly authority over demons because we're seated with Christ because we have authority from the Father, because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So how do we guard ourselves? Chapter 12, verse 11 says, by being cleansed with the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 12, verse 11 says, the saints conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So conquering, here's the threefold thing again, conquering is kingly conduct, applying the blood of the Lamb is priestly conduct, and having the scriptures on our lips out loud, just like Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for it is written. That is the prophetic function, okay? But the last kingly action I want to remind you of is that of binding demons in the pit. Jesus bound the strong man, who was Satan, legally at the cross, and literally, according to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, literally bound him in the pit in the abyss in AD 70. Though other demons continue to be around, Satan has not been with us since AD 70. And having bound the strong man, it is the church's duty to plunder Satan's house. And this involves binding other strong men and other demons in similar ways. So Jesus gave us the paradigm, not only in his earthly ministry, but in his binding of Satan to the abyss. In Revelation 20, he says, now I want you guys to do the same thing. As those who are united with Jesus, you have authority to bind other strong men to bind other demons in the pit. In fact, Zechariah 13 says there's coming a time when there will not be any demons left in the world. Why? Because Christians have been doing, taking seriously their duty of imitating Christ, operating in his authority and binding demons to the pit. Now, in all of these actions, we must not only represent Christ well, but we must also have Christ living his kingship through us. And we also need to balance our work of of the kingly with the priestly and the prophetic work. And my online outline will give samples of all three, uh, kingly, priestly, and prophetic. But may God enable us to better and better represent Christ's authority as kings within our own jurisdiction. Amen. Father, we thank you for the incredible privileges that we have, the authority that we have in Christ. I pray that you would help us as a people to see ourselves as literally seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. Because of our union with him, we can wield, as Revelation 2 says, even that rod of iron and smashing the nations with it. Help us, Father, to take on the prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly, uh, applying your finished work in ways that will transform this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.